0: Last week we jumped into the deep end of the theological pool as we waded out into Romans chapter 9. And Pastor Peter did a fantastic job kicking it off by reminding us that tone and truth both matter. Especially, especially when you're you're dealing with hard theological issues like what we're wrestling with in Romans chapter 9 regarding God's electing love. So last week I know it was a bad weather week. A lot of people missed and weren't able to be here. If you didn't hear that, please go online and hear that because it's a foundational piece to everything else we're going to do in these messages in Romans 9. And there's going to be four or five more messages. And I can't repeat everything Peter said, but I want to make sure you've got that in context of how he showed us tone and truth as we go into the deep end of the theological pool. So go back and listen to that online or grab a CD in the Resource Center if you didn't hear that. Let's jump in. Romans chapter 9. I hope you have a Bible with you. Turn with me in your Bible or your app to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. So I want to ask you to stand as I read Romans 9 beginning in verse 1. I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption of the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they're of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now look at me a minute. That is the first of ten times that Paul will quote from the Old Testament. So it's a good example for you. If you are that Christian that only reads the New Testament and the Psalms, shame on you. You'll have a much greater understanding of New Testament teaching and truth when you have the context of the Old Testament. And Paul and other New Testament writers often reached back there and brought it over. He's going to quote from the Old Testament ten times in this one chapter. And that's the first right there. Pick it up in verse 8. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this. But when Rebecca also had conceived by one man. Even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born. Nor having done any good or evil. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works but of him who calls. It was said to her. The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Look at me again. That phrase, certainly not, is the same one he's used multiple times in chapter 6 when he was driving home how wonderful God's grace is and you're saved by grace and not works. And he anticipates, maybe you're thinking, well, if... If it's all about grace, why don't we run out and just sin some more to get some more grace? And he answered, meganoita. Certainly not. No way. Banish the thought. No way. Same phrase here. Meganoita. It's the strongest Greek term for you're not thinking the right way. No. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows. Say it. Say it again. Say it like you mean it. But of God who shows. Mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You'll say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does the potter, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. The remnant will be saved for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of say it not works. No one gets right with God through works faith. Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Say it again. Jesus. For they stumbled ...at that stumbling stone... ...as it is written... ...behold, I lay in Zion... ...a stumbling stone... ...and rock of offense... ...and whoever believes... ...on him... ...will not be put... ...to shame. You may be seated. Now there's a lot... ...there's a lot going on in those 33 verses... ...so here's all I want to accomplish today... ...in the time we have left. So I want you to know up front where I'm headed... All I want to address is one thing. One thing I want to address from this passage, and it's this. Paul anticipates, Paul anticipates that if you've been tracking along with him and you haven't allowed your mind to dart off and take a mini vacation and start thinking about other things, he anticipates that if you've been tracking along with him and understanding what he's actually saying, then you might find swelling up within you, uh but that's not fair. That's not fair. But God, that's not fair. That's not right. And being the good pastor that he is, I've told you it repeatedly, he wasn't just a missionary, not just an evangelist, not just someone who loves to proclaim God's truth. He had a shepherd pastor heart. He loved people and he doesn't want to leave us hanging and confused and fussing and fuming. So he anticipates the objection that he thinks might be rising within you. And and I love that about Paul. He does it in other letters, but he does it the most in the book of Romans because it's such a tightly reasoned and argued book that he'll say, blah, 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 blah. And as he's teaching and building a case, he thinks, now, I bet if you're tracking with me, you're thinking this, let me address this. That's what he's doing right here. He anticipates that if you're really tracking with him, you might be saying, "But, but that can't be right. That's not fair. That's not just. And he wants to answer that objection. See, listen, Peter did a great job and it was wise to involve children. That warms everything up. We've got children in a message on election. I I don't know how he pulled that off. Very smart. But it doesn't matter what you do, what illustration you use. If you walked out of here last week a little uneasy and just thought, ah, is he really saying what I think he's saying? Is he really teaching from the Bible what I think he's teaching? Ah, that that doesn't set right with me that doesn't seem right that doesn't seem fair that doesn't seem just there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing wrong with you if that's you then that's every human being that I know of that when you first as a first response to this doctrine of God's electing love as a first reaction of God's electing love that's very normal but I'm going to go on and say something in love whether or not you will keep on feeling that way is largely determined by two things. Ready? How big you're willing to allow God to be and how much you're willing to submit to his word and not what you think or feel. The uneasiness makes you very normal, very human. Even some of you that are like, if you're angry, still normal. But do hear me saying, what divides people who have settled in and said, I think that's what the Bible teaches versus those that just just keep frothing and fuming. And is those two things. How big are you willing to allow God to be? Or have you come up with a God of your own making? It's like, that's what God's supposed to be like that. So he's like that. I've decided that. And so this can't be right. And how much are you willing to submit to his word rather than, but I think, I feel, right there, those two issues election can be unsettling at first glance, no doubt. But here's what I'm convinced of. If you keep gazing at it through the lens of Scripture, not from some friend you may have run into that was some hyper-Calvinist that just harped away on this in a cold, disinterested, angry, harsh, arrogant way. Boot them out. If you keep looking at this doctrine through the lens of Scripture, I believe in time you will find it to be one of the sweetest, Most glorious, most comforting doctrines in all the Bible. So look at the objection with me in verse 19. Romans 9, 19. Look at it in your Bible. And I'm going to read it out of the NIV this time. Romans 9, 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? In other words, Paul anticipates what you might be thinking. Hey, if God is sovereign absolutely sovereign. Don't blame me for my choices because I don't really have any. But that's not the biblical doctrine of election. That's fatalism. The Bible doesn't teach fatalism. It doesn't teach that we're robots. The Bible actually teaches the doctrine of God's electing love and the doctrine of man's responsibility to make free choices to either reject or receive the free offer of salvation. And if you're sitting there saying, but both can't be true, Brad. Both are true in God's word. And so here's what you have to do. I've said this to you before as a church family. I want us to be that church. Wherever you land on the doctrine of election, wherever you land, I want you to know this. I hope you'd be encouraged that you're in a church family that refuses to ignore any part of scripture and chooses to try to stand in the biblical tension Of holding on to all biblical truth. And not just picking and choosing. There's a way to relieve this tension. There are people that just run around. And they just want to quote all the sovereignty of God verses. And they're hyper over it. And they ignore all the whosoever will may come. But as many as receive Christ. Here we go. Come unto me. They push all that aside. And they just harp on this. And there's other people that want to ignore all the sovereignty of God verses. And just emphasize this. You're sitting right now in a church where we say we're going to hold on to all the biblical truth and stand in the middle tension of both and say, yes, God, this is what you've revealed. We're going to preach it and teach it and live it and submit to it and try to understand it best as we can as you've presented it, not what makes sense fully to us. I know it's mind boggling, but it's biblical to hold on to both. And so let me put my finger on some of you in love. I'm just just tapping you. It's not an ugly poke. Just, (laughs) here I am, finger on your shoulder. If you're that man or woman who goes through life thinking that you're going to think your way with human logic and reason all the way through all there is to know about God and salvation, you're going to be one frustrated man or woman. Don't hear what I didn't just say. Oh, Christianity makes no sense. We don't think. We don't have a brain. It's just a leap of faith. I have no idea. (laughs) No. We think. And we have much to think about. But even as you think your way through what we have, it's never fully all we wish we had. And you're left bowing at the edges of some mystery. Not, I have no idea, but I don't have everything I wish. I still have some questions. Welcome to humanity. I still have some questions. Me too. But my question should never cause me to reject what he is saying because I still have some questions. I want to be that man who submits to God's word. Because if you don't get here, you've only got two options. You either fall into the ditch of being a very frustrated agitated christian most of your life because you think you have to logically figure everything out and chart it and diagram it until you do you're just not satisfied not at peace not at ease not or you throw yourself into the ditch of eliminating some verses and just saying well i don't believe that what about that oh i don't believe that what about that oh i don't believe that either what else don't you believe When you start saying, there it is, that's what it says, but I don't believe that, then why not go back to Genesis and say, I don't believe creation either. I don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe in the deity. Oh, he's fully man and fully God. Yeah, I get that. No, you don't. (laughs) Jesus was fully man, fully God. You you got that all figured out? Trinity. Every illustration we come up, here's the apple, the skin, the core. It all breaks down at some point. Every Trinity. Virgin birth, deity of Christ, fully man, full of God. God's electing love and men and women make free choices to reject, or receive the gospel. Okay, there ought to be a hole in the side of your head if you're very biblical. All right, if it's all sealed up, you haven't reached the right point yet. But don't hear me saying we don't think nothing makes sense. Do hear me saying we should think our way to the very limits of where we then bow our knees and we worship. And we say, thank you, Lord. One day we'll know more. But right now, I don't want to be that man or woman that just decides I'll believe what I believe only if it makes sense to me. Does it make sense to you that a person who died on a cross 2000 years ago took care of your sin problem? You're on your way to heaven. I wonder about Christians who say they're saved and they believe that. And then they pick other things in the Bible and say, but I don't believe that. Just saying. Little tap, remember? Just loving finger on your shoulder. So, look at the objection again in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist His will? And here's another reason, folks, that I lean into the biblical teaching of the doctrine of God's electing love, and I don't back off saying, I don't think we're understanding this right. If he wasn't saying what we do teach here, that God does elect, why would this whole chapter be giving an answer for your feelings of, but that's not fair? Does that make sense? The fact that this explanation of, but that's not fair, is in there means, he is saying, God elects. But, he, but I know it's, it's difficult. There's, there's the temptation, the accusation that we're tempted to throw at God that I want you to look at more carefully in verse 19 is really this. All right, Paul, you say that God uses men for whatever he wants to use them and that men cannot resist him. And then you give an illustration of Pharaoh... Well, if that's the case, then Pharaoh's just a puppet in God's hands carrying out God's predetermined purpose and plan. And so it's not his fault. You can't hold him accountable. That's not fair. To put it bluntly, here's what sometimes we think and feel. It looks like God uses men to do evil, then turns around and blames them for the evil they did and punishes them for the evil he made them do. That's not right. Okay, stay with me. If that's you, I agree with you. That's not right. You just connected the dots in the wrong way and came to a wrong conclusion. So let's just stop. Take a deep spiritual breath. Ready? Everybody. You can get kind of worked up with this, right? Like, eh. And, I, and I, I think I know why. You know, when I've said to people, what about the virgin birth? What about Trinity? What about deity? Here's what makes this different. They would admit, I don't fully understand that or that or that, but I believe it. This is related to the eternity of people we know and love. It's personal. It's the stakes seem higher. And so you're just kind of like, but, 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 but not, not that, not that. So just take a breath and I want you to see how Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, answers the objection that he knows you're probably going to start feeling if you didn't check out and take a mental vacation. And what you see in Romans 9 is that Paul brings three arguments to the table to help us wrestle through this sense of, well, I understand God is sovereign, but that's not fair. Ready? Number one. First argument he brings to the table is, do you really think... That you're qualified to judge God. Look at it in verse 20. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? The NIV says, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? In other words, as you get ready to judge and criticize God, about anything he does, what are your credentials for doing so? What are your credentials? I mean, you're gonna judge. See, but here's the problem. We live in a day that is just ripe with fill out a comment card, do a survey, tell us what you think, tell us how we're doing. It was on the phone. I'm waiting to pay my bill with Verizon. It's like, are you willing to take a one-minute survey? Basically, one-minute survey is like, how'd we do? Do you like the person? Not, they solve your problem. And we bring that mentality with us even to God thinking, it's my job to tell him how he's doing and to criticize and to give input and say, Whoa, you know, huh? let me fill in some blanks for you. That, that right there, you're missing it all together. <clears throat> Furthermore, what are your credentials for judging and criticizing God? And then you got to ask this question What's your measuring stick? On what basis do you determine just and unjust? You've got to have a basis. You've got to have something. Is yours better than God? What are your credentials versus God's? And what is your measuring stick or your basis for just and unjust when you say that's not fair? And let's consider. Let's contrast human beings and God then, okay? Let's contrast human beings and God. If you haven't been paying attention, and maybe you hadn't, You haven't been paying attention and you don't know history very well. We, human beings, don't have such a great track record on justice. I don't know if you've missed that. We've made horrible decisions, come to horrible conclusions, had horrible means of determining right and wrong. And Paul says, okay, let's take a look at this. Here's God and here's human beings, man. Let's compare and consider the difference between the two. And this is where some of you go awry. And the difference between us and God is vast. There is a grand canyon gulf between us and God, our wisdom and God's, our mercy and God's, our compassion and God's, our justice and God's, our ways and God's ways, our thoughts and God's thoughts. You getting the picture? Whereas we tend to think we're standing on level ground, having a chat with buddy God. I'm saying, listen, God, this, this doesn't make good sense. Let me help you out. E- even for your PR campaign, you're looking bad. I-, I wouldn't do this. This can't be. There's a Grand Canyon Gulf. And let me point out what some of that gulf is. As we compare God and human beings, let's just hit pause for a minute and revisit some of the basic characteristics of man versus God. Ready? I want to give you three. Number one, we... Are finite. That means our knowledge is limited. What we do know is always going to be limited. There's always more. There's always more. There's always more. Oh, we've, we've done some amazing things with, with telescopes and shooting things up in the sky that can take pictures. We've done amazing things with plumbing miles below the ocean surface. And but it doesn't matter what we do. All we do is get the pictures back and realize, oh my goodness, we thought the edge was here. It's not. There's more. There's more. There's more. Our knowledge is limited. And our perspective and scope is limited. And our ability to properly assimilate the data that we do have is limited. And on top of that, our ability to draw consistent, accurate conclusions from the data is pathetically limited. But not God. His knowledge is infinite, unlimited. And see, here's the real rub. Some of you don't believe that. It's your biggest problem that keeps you from having a better relationship with God and, by the way, a better relationship with any human being in your life. Because here's how you go through life. Here's your mindset. If I think it, it must be right. And you are so much fun to be married to, to live with, to work with, to play with, to go to church with. Not. Right? Man, it just makes perfect sense to me. Duh. If I think it, it must be right. What's behind that? What's the big sin that drives that mentality? Thank you. Thank you. So we're finite. You got to remember, folks, everything you're ever thinking, ever, you're thinking through a flawed, finite mind. So we're finite. But let me push it a little further. Not only are we finite, we are frail. We're finite. We're frail. R.C. Sproul has an illustration I love. He says, life for human beings is lived between two hospitals. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? I mean, you may have had a bathtub, home birth, but normally hospital. (laughs) Even then, you show up very helpless, whether it's bathtub or hospital... You need someone to pick you up, wipe you off, feed you, clean you, help you. And even as we live longer and longer because of medicine and health care, etc., it still usually ends with someone needing to help you do almost everything. And it's a reminder we are frail despite some of the great moments in the middle. God is not. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us, Isaiah chapter 40 points to some, Pretty sad things and says, that's you. Remember what he points to? Grass that withers and flowers that fade in the summer heat. That's you. And yet God in his strength is unlimited. Almighty. We're finite, we're frail, but we're not done. We're finite, we're frail. And on top of that, despite all our clever logic and and all our wisdom and all our degrees, we're incredibly foolish. Foolish you got three F's there for your condition. Finite, frail, foolish. The record shows that throughout the course of history, we are incredibly foolish despite our logic and all that we think. It's mankind, folks, in all his wisdom and logic and amazing breakthroughs that has left a trail of atrocious blunders as we stumble from one bad decision to the next, like blind men and women falling in and out of ditches. It's the wisdom of mankind and their logic and all their research that would bring us to today that would say, oh, people aren't boys and girls when they're born. We got to wait for them to decide what they are, despite the uh, plumbing that's hanging right there or or right. I don't know if he's a boy or a girl. Don't start calling him Bobby, maybe Betty. He gets to decide whether he's Bob or Betty. Are you kidding me? What confusion and nonsense and heartache and mess that we can't say men and women on the bathroom doors now just use whatever bathroom you want. There's the wisdom of man, right? That's our history. I mean, constantly, don't you pick up the newspaper and just say, who thinks this is a good idea? Who thought of this? But Dr. So-and-so is saying, fool. Fool, fool, finite, frail, fool. OK, there we are. And then there's God. Big difference. So who do you think you are? What are your credentials and what is your basis of measuring just and unjust? That's why Paul spoke the way he did in First Corinthians one, when he said, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age, the philosopher, the debater? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love that verse because I want you to notice what he's doing. He doesn't say, let's compare the wisdom of God to the wisdom of man, and God's is better. That would be true. You notice what he said? For the foolishness of God on his worst day, and my illustration is breaking down, he doesn't have a bad day. But he's saying, if there was any foolishness in God, his foolishness is wiser than men. The weakness of God, and there is none, but if we could find one, is stronger than man. What are your credentials for judging and criticizing God? On what basis? What's your track record? What do you bring to the table? See, if it wasn't such a serious blunder... And it is a serious blunder. It would almost be comical, folks. It would almost be comical to see this puny man or woman that's eaten up with the three F's, right? Finiteness, frailty, foolishness. Standing on tiptoe with their little clenched fist, squeaking out accusations and insults against the God of the universe who holds their next breath and keeps their heart pumping. Demanding that he explain what he's doing because it doesn't make sense to me and I wouldn't have done it that way. But let me say this in love. If that's you here this morning, you are the tiptoe, clenched fist squeaker. We probably got some squeakers here. That just That's still your posture. You've come to Christ, but there's a lot of things about this, including this, you're just like squeak, 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 squeak. It's like, ah, I got some good news for you. You're not the first. You will not be the last. You will not win. And God still loves you anyway, squeaker. That's really good news. I mean, why he doesn't just, you're just a greasy spot in your living room, your driveway, your kitchen, your workplace. What a good God, right? We struggle on a human level. When my children begin to squeak loudly in my face in those double-digit teen years, I just want to snuff them out. I'm just proud of myself. They all still have heads connected to their shoulders, and DSS never had to be called. It's like, I want to take your head off and let you carry it back to your bedroom as you do what I said do. That's on a human level. Imagine. Don't ever question if God is loving. The fact that you're still alive, it proves he's loving. And he's merciful. If you are squeaking on tiptoe with little clenched fist, you're not the first. You won't be the last. You will not win. And God loves you anyway. So thank you, God. What a God. What a God. And see, that's what the book of Job is all about. That's what the, God gives us a book in the Bible that's 42 chapters long that actually addresses this This makes no sense to me. It doesn't add up what I know about God. This is not how things should be working out. There's a whole book, 42 chapters on that. And Job, you know, the story, I assume some degree, was not a skeptic. He wasn't a heathen. He wasn't an atheist. He was a man that deeply loved God. But he was deeply bewildered about what God was doing in his life. I mean, he was covered in boils from head to toe. One of the most miserable, painful sicknesses known to men. He lost all his children and business in one fell swoop with a catastrophe that slammed into his life like a trip hammer. One, right, after the next. He couldn't even hardly catch his breath before the next messenger was standing there with more bad news. Top of that, he had three torturers that were called friends who showed up and their goal was to convince him that his suffering was his fault. You got to have done something, Joe. This doesn't happen to good people. Come on. Come on, Joe. What'd you do? What'd you do? What'd you do? And so in desperation, he cries out and says, God, this makes no sense. If I could just have you right here for five minutes and plead my case, you would be wrong and I would be right and you'd see it. And so God shows up. In Job 38 to 41. And he says, all right, Job, here I am. Hello, I'm not hiding. But here's the deal. You got a lot of questions, it seems. I go first because I'm God. It always works that way. He goes first, always. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when the morning stars sang together? And I flung the heavens and the galaxies into space with just a word, let it be, let it be, let it be. And boom, 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 boom. Do you know how all that happened? Do you have any idea? Well, let's go low. Can you enter in the secrets of the depths of the sea? And do you know how Leviathan plays and frolics in the deep? Do you understand how rain works and how lightning works? Do you know how to make icicles and thunderbolts? Huh? Any idea? These are simple things to me, Job. How you doing? And he hung his head, but God wasn't finished. He says, let's go up again, Job. Let's talk about the stars. Let's go there. There's a billion of them. And I call them all by, say it, name. I call them all by name. And keep them running in their course. Can you make Pleiades shine forth in the springtime? Can you make Orion stride across the winter sky? Always on time? Now for the sake of time, I'm going to hit pause. There's more. He gives Job 74 questions about the universe. And in a sense, what he's saying is Job... Do you think you could do a better job running the universe? And the answer is no. Then who are you to question me about what I do in your life? And at that point, Job adjusts his attitude radically in Job 42, 3 and 6. and says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent and dust and ashes. That is what some of you need to do regarding Romans 9. See, it doesn't fully make sense to me, but I'm not going to start to accuse God and assume He's wrong and impugn His character and draw conclusions and connect dots in ways that lead me to horrible... I'm going to bow the knee and worship, lay my hand over my mouth and say, I've spoken of things that are too wonderful for me. I'm finite, frail, and foolish... Who am I to think I'm going to fully understand everything God does? Let's bring it back to a human level again. Picture a mother and the child's convinced that mom loves me. No one loves me more than mom. She's proved it. She's got a track record of love. And yet that same mother holds that four-year-old while some mean nurse drives an IV into her arm. And the child's just looking at mother like, what is up with you? Everything I thought about you is changing right now. And yet does not. mom not know something she doesn't know? This is much better than having your tonsils cut out with no anesthesia. Let me know how that goes for you. So if mom gives in, mom's not loving. But in this moment, the child thinks this is not love. This is not what I would do. But mom knows something child doesn't know. Could it be yeah, it is, that that's us with God? He's not capricious. He's not a despot. He doesn't randomly just do terrible things. So he knows more than we know. And he's good. And Paul lays down a second argument. So who are you to judge God? What are your credentials and what's your basis for just and unjust? Secondly, shouldn't God be allowed to have the same sovereignty that we ourselves exercise here in this life? Look at it in verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? In other words, he's saying we decide what to do with what what is ours. We decide what to do with what is what is ours. We make decisions about how we're going to use our stuff, and nobody questions us. But right now, I know what you might be thinking. But Brad, we're not clay. That might be okay to do with unfeeling clay, but human beings are people created in the image of God. And so God is obligated to treat us differently. Hang on. When you use the word obligated, I don't think you know what you're doing. News alert. Despite our self-esteem, man-centered, God owes it to us theology, it's rampant today, God's not obligated to us in any way to do anything ever. In fact, I would back off on pushing obligation because if he had an obligation, it would be to his justice that he's obligated to send us all rightfully to hell But his mercy, in his mercy, he doesn't. In his mercy, he saves and redeems and rescues men and women from every tribe and tongue and language and people. I wouldn't go running around shouting obligation. We should fall to our knees and be amazed at the word mercy. Mercy. Anybody who's here and you're a Christian, you're an object of God's mercy. You didn't figure that out on your own. You didn't make a choice and you're smarter than everybody else. You're an object of God's mercy. And that's why we don't have time to look at them. But go back to Romans 9 with a highlighter or, or something. You'll find the word mercy or compassion seven times in this chapter. Seven times. Mercy. Compassion. But still somebody's probably saying, but Brad, it just doesn't seem fair. And so Paul gives a third argument. Number three. Could it be that God has purposes that we just don't see or understand right now? And that's what he's saying in verses 22 to 26 when he says, What if God, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath, prepared for destruction? And what if, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Paul's reminding us that God may have purposes we can't even see and couldn't understand if He showed them to us. This is bonus. Not in your notes. I'm going to have to go fast, so write it down. Write some verses down. Let's do a clinic on the ways of God. Ready? Little baby clinic on the ways of God. I'm going to go fast, but go look them up later, but I'm reading it from God's Word. Go right to Romans 11. We're going to get there soon, probably this year. Romans chapter 11, verse 30. That's soon. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to 35. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Why do we keep thinking, I ought to understand everything he does fully. His ways past finding out who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, who has first given him and it shall be repaid to him. Keep going right. First Corinthians chapter 13, first Corinthians 13, verse 12, first Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know everything I want to know. Now I know in what part? Now I know in part But then I shall know just as I'm also known. We're going to go Old Testament. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so higher my thoughts above your thoughts. And my ways above your ways. One of our biggest problems is we keep thinking, he's just like me. What I think, he would think. If I think it, it must be true. Why isn't he doing it? Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. There's a place to study, study, study and I'll spend the rest of my life studying and reading my Bible to understand more. But you better understand there's a place for bowing the knee and leaning into the breast of a good God and saying, I don't understand it all but I'm not going to question your character. You're good and I'm going to rest there until I know more. You're good and I'm going to rest there. That's what Psalm 131 is talking about. Job 11, Job 11, verse 7 and 8. Job 11, verse 7 and 8. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Shoal, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Now, with the minute that I have left, I wanna talk to two different groups here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to say, oh my word, there's no hope for me now. I'm ripping open my shirt. Do I have any E tattooed on my chest? Am I elect? I don't know. And if I don't know, why bother coming to Christ? Because maybe you say, get out of here. Go to hell. I already chose you for hell. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here. The electing love of God is the rock we stand on to know God's heart that he's already chosen people. You want to find out if you're elect? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. You say, but what if I'm not? Come to Christ. Will you come to Christ? Will you come to Christ? You have a real choice and free will to exercise, to either reject this message. So don't use election as an excuse. Today you heard the truth of God's word that includes an invitation that says, come. Because the same Bible that tells us in Romans 9, God is sovereign and elects in love is the same one in Second Peter 3, 9 that says, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come. Won't you come? The same Jesus stood before crowds and he didn't say, hey, I've got good news. Some of you can come. The rest of you are toast. You're going to hell. He never talked that way. He said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Will you come? Will you come? If you go to hell, it will be your choice to go to hell. The free offer goes out. It goes out. Come to Christ. Turn from your sins. Put your faith in Christ. The same book, Romans, when we get to chapter 10, is going to say in Romans ten thirteen that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you maybe can be saved if you're elect. You will be saved. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Now I want to talk to a second group. If you're here and you're a Christian and you've been praying, praying, praying for a loved one, you got a son or a daughter or a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, a, a college roommate, a best friend, someone at the gym, someone dear to you, Don't you dare roll out of here and say, oh, well, 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 whatever. Why pray? Why evangelize? No one will come to Christ apart from someone speaking the gospel and extending the gospel. And God tells us prayer is powerful and changes hearts. Don't you dare stop praying. Don't you dare stop speaking the gospel. The same thing's gonna happen in Romans 10, where he said, how shall they hear except there be a preacher? How shall anyone know except you go? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news. You are called to take this good news and to pray and to witness and to pray and to talk of Jesus and to pray and to extend hope to people. We're going to stand at the biblical tension of God's electing love and people have to respond. And we're called to give this message. Father, thank you for your word, all of it. Lord, thank you for all that we do know that leads us to the edges of what we don't know. And there we bow the knee and we worship. And we say, God, you are God, we are not. We're gonna let you be God and we're gonna trust you and we're gonna do what you've called us to do pray and serve and sacrifice and witness and speak of Jesus and offer hope to hurting broken people, knowing that you're a God that sent your son to die for sinners. And you have already decided they're going to come from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And we get to be your ambassadors. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.